This is a Federal News Network podcast. Stronger inspectors general and more protections for whistleblowers. Those are concerns in the House these days. But will the Senate go along? We get the latest congressional outlook from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, update us on the status. There was a whistleblower bill and there's an inspector general bill in the House. What's the latest? Well, first of all, on the inspectors general, there was a lot of concern in the House about what happened under the uh, Trump administration with former President Trump getting rid of many IGs during his term. In fact, he got rid of five IGs in a very short amount of time, basically saying that he had the power to do that, which he did. Uh, Among them, just as one example, Steve Linick, the State Department inspector general who was investigating the then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo that he was using the department staff to run personal errands for him and his family. Family. That was one of them. And so basically the House decided they needed to jump in, at least among Democrats, and said, we need to pass some more protections and give more authority, more independence to the IG. So they passed this legislation this past week under this inspectors general could only be removed for cause and they'd be granted authority to subpoena witnesses, testimony from witnesses who aren't currently government employees. Inspectors general would also have to notify Congress if agencies refuse refused to provide access to requested information. So this was one area where they tried to bolster things up. And then on a committee level related to the whistleblowers, this was in the House Oversight and Reform Committee. They passed a couple of bills last week. One would reauthorize the Merit Systems Protection Board. That actually hasn't been done for almost 15 years. It also hasn't had a quorum for several years. This legislation would basically allow whistleblowers to appeal cases in federal court if that board doesn't issue a decision in the case in six months and then in some other cases that are more complicated uh, in eight months. And then a second bill, the Whistleblower Protection Improvement Act, co-sponsored by Virginia Congressman Jerry Connolly, that would prohibit agencies from launching retaliatory investigations against whistleblowers. As we know, a lot of different things have come up over the recent years about whether or not whistleblowers are actually getting the protection they need. A lot of Democratic lawmakers don't think they do. It would bar basically them from being retaliated against uh, in, in connection with sharing information with Congress. And what about the Senate? Any stomach in the Senate for this type of thing, or it is looks it 50-50? Like, it looks like it's going to take a little time, especially in connection with the inspectors general. Uh, some of the reservations that were raised by Republicans in the House debate, I think, are still there in the Senate. There is some concern that actually the IGs could get a little too much power and that there's some concern about a potential abuse of power at that level. So we'll have to see on that. And then the other one, I think it's just too early to say as it moves through the House. House, it's still going to obviously have to get to the full House on the uh, actual whistleblowers. Uh, but we'll see where it goes. Of course, Democrats still have that 50-50 edge with the vice president potentially providing the uh, extra vote. But uh, as we know, on a lot of issues, including infrastructure, it's still very dicey. Sure. And uh, briefly, what is the situation with respect to security on the Capitol Hill? Clever of Nancy Pelosi to put Liz Cheney on the select committee to investigate all of that. Right. Trying to push back against what's going to be all kinds of accusations by Republicans that this will be a select committee that is totally partisan. But by getting uh, Liz Cheney on this committee, she's trying to take away a little of that argument. Uh, We'll have to see what happens. This is actually six months since the attack on the Capitol. So the select committee, uh, House Speaker Pelosi really wanted to get it into place. Once it was passed last week by the House, she acted very quickly to name eight members. And of course, one of them being Liz Cheney. Uh, A lot of pushback, by the way, from the House's top Republicans. 
Republican Kevin McCarthy on that. He had suggested at some point last week that there might be some retaliation if members decided to go along with House Speaker Pelosi telling some lawmakers reportedly that uh, they would be stripped of their committees. He later denied that, but he did make it very clear he does not like the idea of having Liz Cheney basically serve at the request of House Speaker Pelosi. So in terms of the committee, they met very briefly uh, right away. Um, Kevin McCarthy can still name five members himself. He hasn't indicated a timeline on that, but uh, the Speaker has indicated she wants to get this investigation moving very quickly. They will be able to subpoena witnesses. So it's not as if this uh, committee will just be some kind of political paper tiger. They do have some power to, to move ahead. And then in terms of the actual security here at the Capitol, we're getting very close to a possible final decision in connection with bringing down the final security fence around the Capitol complex. As we've talked about over many months, there's still a lot of opposition to having that fence up from members of both parties. But as far as the Capitol itself, things are really getting closer to normal than really I've seen since uh, the start of the pandemic and then even after January 6th. However, it should still be noted that uh, there have not been any public groups or school children that you would normally see coming to visit the Capitol since uh, the early stages of the pandemic, really more than a year now. So that is one thing that is very different still here on Capitol Hill. Well, maybe they could bury a wire and everyone would have to wear a dog neck zapper or something to get there and there's <laughs> to no make fence. sure you can't leave or come in, right? right? We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And by the way, budgeting, there was a bill on transportation package, but the vehicle no pun intended for that, could get interesting. Yes, very interesting. I mean, normally this would be a fairly basic bipartisan transportation package, the surface transportation package. The House did pass it $715 billion. Interestingly, mainly along party lines, so still some divisions there. Republicans don't like a lot of the climate change initiatives that are included in this package. But what's interesting is that package, despite a lot of division over it, could potentially, Democrats at least hope, could be a building block to go into that $1 trillion bipartisan package that uh, has been tentatively agreed to in the Senate. This is really the first bill that has come together that has more of the nuts and bolts if you will, on these uh, initiatives related to roads, bridges, water, etc. So it could potentially be folded into that $1 trillion package, but there's a lot of work to be done. It's still unclear on how the timing of all this is going to come together. And this month really is critical for the infrastructure package. I know we keep saying that, but this one really is because this is the month that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had indicated he wants votes on both the bipartisan package as well as this so-called human infrastructure package, which includes child care, education, and a whole lot of other initiatives that uh, Republicans say are just way too broad for infrastructure. But nonetheless, for the Democrats to thread the needle on bringing all these packages together and then basically having to vote on them one right after the other is going to be very, very difficult in July. I have a feeling, as we often do see, that it's probably going to be pushed back and they may need to stick around in August. And very briefly, does the best 
places to work rankings, which we've been covering extensively here. Does that come to light on Capitol Hill? Do they notice that? They do notice it. And, and you know, there is some touting of uh, these agencies that, that have done a good job. And I think that there is a recognition from lawmakers that actually the federal government, as you know and have reported on, got pretty good marks uh, in connection with, you know, what was obviously an unforeseen pandemic, um, getting 86 out of 100 points on basically that federal agencies, federal employees felt their agencies did support them during the pandemic. And as we've talked about over the last year about all the different things related to telework and that type of thing. So I think there is some appreciation, as we've also discussed, you know, a lot of times uh, lawmakers are really giving these agencies a hard nudge on making sure that they do more for telework and, and do more for federal employees. But I think we're finding that there is some appreciation among members of Congress about what these agencies have been able to do. Now, of course, you know, you've got the agencies like NASA and the GAO that are often right there at the top. But, you know, there were also a lot of other agencies that had to be pretty nimble here. And uh, again, I think there's some recognition from lawmakers that a lot of agencies really did a good job. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, 
What have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic 
uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just $3.99 per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just $3.99 per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.